folks, and welcome to The Farm, a podcast dedicated to culture, parapolitics, and high weirdness in all its many forms. This is your host, Recluse, a.k.a. Stephen Snyder, the longtime curator of the Visa blog and author of a special relationship, Trump, Epstein, and the secret history of the Anglo-American establishment. If you like what you hear here today, be sure to check me out at visupview.blogspot.com. That's V-I-S-U-P-V-I-E-W, all one word, dot blogspot, all one word, dot com. And procure a copy of that book and other works at The Farm's official store, which is at thefarmpodcast.store. That is thefarmpodcast, all one word, dot store. And please consider signing up for the farm's Patreon. You get two additional full-length shows per month on the lowest tier. That's between three and four hours of bonus material with exclusive guests and content. For the upper tier, the all-access Patreons, you guys get journaling weekly State of the Union addresses, uh, updates on my ongoing investigations, dispatches from all the weird places I go to, just a variety of material, um, and obviously our monthly Zoom party as well, which usually features exclusive presentations from yours truly on all the weird stuff I've been researching. So give that a thought, guys. Anyway, today's guest is a repeater, and he is a fabulous one at that. Making his second appearance on the farm, he has formal training in both seriology and archaeology. Okay, I, I didn't say Arianology this time, so that was awesome. Folks, I give you guys Austinese. Hey, nice. I'm back, unfortunately. <laughs> oh, it's not unfortunate, man. It's uh, it's great to have you back and not to have introduced you as an Aryan Ossifer this time around. <laughs> I, I don't, I, I'd be very worried about what university openly teaches Ariosophy. That would be. <laughs> well, I'm sure some teach it. It would be more if they, they offered like a degree in it. That would be really disturbing. I mean, you know, for a lot of reasons, I could see why you might want to teach somebody about it for practical purposes. But no, of course. But but like getting a degree whole... in like, I'm an Ariosophist would be. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> oh, that would be a little unhinged to put it mildly. All right. So we're back for another round on ancient Egypt. But with this outing, we're taking an even more novel subject by the horns. By the way, you guys should all listen to our prior chat about the fascist origin or the origins of fascism in ancient Egypt. It is superb. Anyway, for this one around, we are going to discuss the storied watchers mythos and its possible origins in ancient Egypt. Many of you are no doubt familiar with the concept of the Watchers or the Fallen Angels. I know uh, the great Christopher Knowles of the Secret Sun has been doing a lot with this lately as well. Uh, so definitely look at some of his research on that regard as well. Uh, but for those of you unaware, we're going to give you a crash course before getting into the meat of our discussion. Namely, did these meats derive from ancient Egypt? And how might it be repurposed for modern mythos? It's going to be quite a discussion, so let's start the show.
So a lot of the people listening to this show have some familiarity with the concept of the Watchers, but let's give them a bit of a rundown of that before we really get going here. So first off, tell us about the appearance of the Watchers in the conventional Bible and uh, the Book of Anak. Well, the Watchers are a really, really fascinating idea. Um, if you aren't familiar, they are the alternative uh, fallen angel story to uh, the whole Lucifer's Rebellion that became really, really big in Christianity. Um, you know, so I'm sure a lot of people who are more into the weird side of the internet have heard of them because it's like it ties in better things like aliens and whatever. <laughs> but this is basically the story of the Watchers is that in Genesis, I think Genesis 6, there's this line that talks about the sons of God and the daughters of men getting it on and having gigantic and warlike offspring um, before the flood. And it's never mentioned again. You get a little bit of that, and then you get a little bit about Enoch, you know, uh, living for a long time, he walked with God, and then he disappeared. And I mean, it's all well and good, and if you're, you know, that kind of religious person, it gives you a lot of good names to name your kid. But it doesn't really explain anything. But, we know for a fact that that was a lot more important than it got to be in the standard version of the Bible. Because, you know, there are a bunch of books that talk about the fall of the Watchers, and they say that these were angels, specifically angels associated with the stars and other natural phenomena that fell to Earth and mated with human women to produce giants. And by giants, a lot of people think of the Indo-European idea of giants, like, you know, big guy, fee-fi-fo-fum, I smell the blood of a Christian man, but these would have been more like like Cthulhu monsters because they, you know, had like wings and all sorts of other horrible things. And besides, you know, doing that, they'd also uh, teach humans things like sorcery and, you know, uh, warfare, basically all the bad stuff. And then, you know, concerned citizen Enoch, who was a patriarch or whatever, goes up and he's like, hey, this is bad. You guys suck. Um, I'm going to go up to God, and then God and the angels that are still loyal are going to teach me everything that's good so I can teach that to humanity and then bind you. At least that's a traditional understanding. Though it gets weirder because there's uh, uh, this guy, Andre Orlov, you know, who's doing a lot more study on it and you know, tying it back to both Mesopotamian and Hellenistic ideas. And it seems that the Watchers weren't just, you know, banging witches and producing giants, they were also changing the cosmic order of the universe. There's stuff where it talks about, you know, like, the sun is moving differently. And, you know, there's droughts because the rain isn't going on. It's like the entire universe is in chaos because it's like all the managers of the system decide to take a day off. And Enoch literally goes up into the heavens and restabilizes everything almost sort of like Prometheus figure. And if you really want to look into things and, you know, kind of strip away the monotheistic redaction that probably happened to make it, you know, more compatible with Sadducee Judaism, they, it would seem that the Watchers, like the Titans, were the old order who controlled the universe, and they fucked it up. And then Enoch and a newer batch of angels... Seven angels specifically, you know, seven like the Mesopotamian gods are like, okay, 
let's fix it. And in any version, the Watchers were cast down to Earth and imprisoned, either in the depths of space or in caves and stuff. It's really interesting with the association with caves and what have you. Um, Two things I wanted to address briefly. Um, You know, I'm really not a big fan of the... uh, the ancient astronaut hypothesis associated with the Watcher slash Fallen Angels. But it is interesting that in um, the Book of Enoch, as I recall, a good chunk of it um, essentially uh, what describes like kind of a process of space journey or something like that, where he's ascending through the different planetary spheres or something to that effect, if I remember correctly. And he's what even shown like different planets, right? In fact, I think the the lake of fire reference that um the meat puppets of all uh things eventually immortalized in the uh song lake of fire uh i think actually derived from some sort of almost prison planet type spectacle that anak was shown um do you have any take on that um i really think it's probably based on uh, the merkaba tradition we have these stories from the rabbis and these manuals on how to get similar visions and even sometimes reach a status near godhood that written by, you know, like second century BC to like fifth century AD rabbis. And they say they're seeing the same thing. I mean, it's less dramatic because, you know, they're not fighting fallen angels, but it's still very, very comparable. I mean, a lot of this is Ida. He is being shown space, but the space he's seeing is very, very, Hellenistically organized in the way it works and the way he sees it. And so that would sort of imply, at least if he's giving an accurate and it's less of, it's like, you know, an actual Enoch's physically floating up into space. That would sort of imply things like the sun revolves around the earth. So I, I see it more of like almost an astral journey, if that makes sense. Totally, that's that tends to be more of my interpretation. Yeah, it's, of this type of stuff it's, as well. It's uh, it's the consciousness, not the physical body, that makes these journeys. Well, I mean, yeah, because here's the thing about this: is like a lot of the times with paranormal experiencing this, completely off topic, is that I, for the most part, think that those have been relatively consistent throughout human history. But that also means that. Stuff like aliens coming down saying, okay, we're going to teach you everything and we're going to make you the pyramids, and, you know, and you're going to do all this stuff for you. It's that I, I don't really believe that because it doesn't happen now. You know, like people have encounters with aliens, people have encounters with, or at least things they deem aliens, you know, ghosts, spirits, disincarnate intelligences, but the Zechariah Stitchin stuff, it's like if it doesn't happen now, I don't think it was that common then. The whole notion of like the ascension of the consciousness, I mean, is certainly known, I mean, in a lot of circles now. In fact, I mean, it's actually been uh, fairly widely popularized by Damien Eccles, of all people, through his own, you know, kind of work with the Enochian keys and quote unquote angel magic and a lot of this other stuff. But, you know, movies like The Great Under the Silver Lake, uh, these bizarre references in that to uh the elite billionaire class practicing this process of theurgy but again you know they have a very gnostic concept of all of this and essentially are implying that it's their soul or their consciousness that will escape this kind of quasi prison planet uh, there's no 
you know, even references to like extraterrestrial or even non-human intelligences really in that uh, sort of um, uh, variation on this. So, yeah, I mean, I definitely think that it's it's very valid earlier precedents, you know, from the ancient world, the kind of between the ancient world and, I mean, modern times. You can obviously look at the Sullabusca Terra deck. Um, Peter Mark Adams has done some, you know, just brilliant scholarly research on that, uh, breaking down how the deck was probably a instruction manual for certain theurgic practices in this case throwing down the moon quote unquote so uh, you know we can find some very clear evidence that this process was known to the elites various elite uh, you know, groups throughout history really but yeah in terms of the um the flying saucer coming down and the nephilim emerging and uh giving us the formula to create steel or something like that that that's um a little harder to come by okay so w one thing i wanted to bring up here quickly before we move on since i just invoked the whole nephilim thing and we're you know getting a bit into the weeds here um have you seen any of the online arguments that the nephilim uh, the references to them in giants wasn't so much an allusion to their stature as the kind of oddity of their appearance and that in reality they actually had a visual representation that would be similar to what we would think of as clowns or jesters or something to that effect um i've never heard of that uh being clowns or jesters i know titans are white-skinned um you know like not white-skinned like oh they're they like I the mean, white and black like, pattern or something but like white and black patterns like toilet paper like, yes, you know, I remember yes. in, uh, when uh, Hera sends the Titans to uh, tear up Dionysus, they're specifically, I think they're covered in chalk. Yeah. But no, I mean, Nephilim, um, Nephilim means fallen ones. They're also called Rephaim, which is sort of a word used for the powerful undead in Canaan. I mean, even the word giant doesn't mean big, at least if we're going off the uh, Greek version. It literally means earthborn. You know, if you look at the giants in Greek mythology or you ever go to like a art museum and you look at like a picture of Gigantomachy on the face, they all have snake legs. Because they're like, oh, well, what's in the earth? Snakes. So the, the idea that giant even means giants is kind of nonsense. We think they were huge because they're described as big and strong in a uh, you know, and being able to fit entire cows in their mouth in, like, the Book of Tuminok. But really, these things would be bizarre horror shows. You know, in the Book of Giants, uh, both at Qumran and Manny, some of them are described as bird-like. Um, we even think that the Anglopede, at least according to some articles, was a representation of the giant. And that's certainly not just a big guy with a club. Yeah, but no. I, oh, go ahead. I haven't really seen any uh, things saying that they look like clowns or jesters. All right, I'll, I'll have to send you the YouTube videos. I mean, I, I don't know how much credence I put in it either, but it is fascinating. And um, the sort of reoccurrence of that, like, chalk white with, like, the black patterns is fascinating. Um, curiously, David Lynch uses that in a lot of his um, work as well. I mean, obviously, Twin Peaks, you see that, like, in the Red Room representations, but it turns up in Mulholland Drive and a lot of his other films, too. Um, and then, you know, I would suspect on some levels, I mean, it's probably uh, uh, 
you know, something that inspired the Masonic, you know, checkerboard pattern as well. But uh, I don't want to, I guess, too far into the weeds more so than we already have. Um, but yeah, it's, it's, it's an interesting topic about that. Uh, anyway, so how did the Kabbalists expand upon the concept of the Watcher as opposed to what was in the Torah and the Book of Enoch? Well, the thing is, the Kabbalists, there were two big schools in early Judaism were the Sadducees and the Pharisees. The Pharisees get a bad rap, but they were... Um, the Sadducees were actually bad. The Pharisees were mostly just pretentious and useless. You know, and the Pharisees, you know, did not have that much power, but they took a lot of the old weird stuff, you know, like the Merkaba mysticism and stuff on like angels and mysteries of Leviathan and all really the Gnostic stuff. And they, you know, kept it. And eventually that became parts of rabbinic Judaism. And they're like, how do we expand upon this? And so what they did is that they, uh, <clears throat> instead of it being like 220 or whatever angels that fell on Mount Hermon, they said it was three, which are, I think, uh, Samyaza, Uza, and Azael. You know, so it's only three watchers instead of hundreds. And, and they talk a bit about Samyaza, but not, not that much. What they really talk about is Azazel, who was the guy who uh, taught metalworking. And if I remember rightly, they describe Azazel as like almost as Azathoth figure. In fact, here's something from the Zohar about Azazel. Now observe a deep and holy mystery of faith, the symbolism of the male principle and the female principle of the universe. There is a line where the male prince and female principle join, forming together the rider of the serpent and symbolized by Azazel. Now, if you don't know who this male principle and female principle are, the male principle is Samael, who is sort of this idea of a death dimension, you know, uh, or the outer darkness. And the female principle is Lilith, who's sort of all the bad things in Earth dimension is actually sort of the lower spiritual aspect of man, according to some Kabbalists. And so the idea is that rather than just angels that fell on their own accord, these were sort of more like... Are you familiar with Lord of the Rings? Uh, is the Pope Catholic? Yeah, okay. Well, that depends. <laughs> uh, yeah, I guess that's, uh, yeah, I guess that's maybe a bit more of a relevant statement than, uh, you know, the uh, architects of that joke had originally thought. But um, no, yes, I am a uh, a bit yeah. of a Tolkien nerd. Yeah, well, it's like, uh, the, if I remember rightly, it's like the arrow is that, you know, they, there is stuff involving Morgoth. And Samael would be Morgoth, and, you know, Azazel would be sort would be sort of instead of just like his own agent and so you know he is the conduit between our world and the worlds of the void where all sorts of clipothic horrors even more incomprehensible dwell sounds like a fascinating job for him it, it's really interesting i mean i i could go on and on about azazel and what he represents but it's it's really i mean if you want like 
Well, you can kind of see, obviously, I mean, how this would eventually tie in heavily to demonology and what have you, too. I think, like, what you're describing with this. Well, I honestly think that Christian demonology, for the most part, is uh, very much a different paradigm, at least, like, orthodox Christian demonology, not, like, Gnostic demonology. Mm-hmm. Because, like, if you read, like, you know, like, uh, the Christian ideas and the Catholic ideas specifically, it's for the most part, all demons are fallen angels, and they do it because they're jealous of humankind for having free will. You know, and they can't really do anything except, you know, be bound. They serve no higher power. They can't really create. All of them are, for the most part, equal to get us to sin so that we go to hell. The Jewish and Islamic and Gnostic ideas seem much more out of Lovecraft than the Sunday school. The way that they're describing the demons and the difference between demons and fallen angels and what lurks in the void and well, even giant, also, I think what some cases like elemental beings and so forth too. Yeah, like giant serpents that encircle the cosmos, giant blind serpents. I mean, obviously, there's a much more complex uh, hierarchy of uh, non-human entities in those systems, whereas uh, in conventional Christianity, like you're saying, I mean, it tends to get reduced to everything just being a demon uh, in a very stereotypical sense. Let's get into, since we're already on the topic here, some of these other traditions, how do the Watchers fit into something like Gnosticism or Manchianism? Well, there are really two schools of uh, Gnosticism that started in the ancient world. There was uh, the Persian kind, or the kind that started in Persia. This would be like Manichaeism, um, and that sort of continued into things like Catharism and Bogomilism, which is just a very dualist interpretation of Jesus. It's almost certainly post-Christian. It's taking a lot of the popular stuff and just sort of mashing it together. And, you know, as the Manichaeans thought that fornication was bad, well, guess what the Watchers did? They fornicated. You know, that, that it's really as simple as that. I mean, it's great because they did actually leave us bits of things like the Book of Giants in its most complete form, which we also have scraps of at Qumran where they found the Sea Scrolls, but that's really less interesting to me just because it's, it, it's a lot less complex. The other kind of Gnosticism, which I, scholars would call uh, Syro-Egyptian, which is where you get things like Hypostase, the Archon, or the stuff from the Nakamadi Library. They talk about these things, and they say that, you know, these celestial powers, who are actually identical with the god of Genesis, or gods of Genesis, or the planetary powers, come in, and these beings at least at one point rule the universe, and they rape Eve, and they create slightly more physical overseers to, uh, you know, do things, including like Cain and Abel. And these beings would, you know, act as their sort of deputies to uh, control the universe. Um, You know, I mean, this is actually like a stock trope in so many works, especially, I think, the Cephian and the Ophite works. And I think also the, uh, the Gospel of Judas mentions this as well. And we think that this sort of Gnostic system is at least very early Christian, if not pre-Christian, it's has ties to Mesopotamian and Egyptian mythology and 
Proto Kabbalah. And the, actually, I think there's a some uh, some Gnostic text. I forgot which, but it talked about the Watchers is actually good, or at least you know, like the beast coming in and fucking the cosmos as doing that because it, it takes the spiritual light out of this world back to where it's supposed to be. How would you see uh, Neoplatonism fitting into this? Because I know there was also sort of the concept of the Demiurge from that that um, was much more positive uh, than what emerged in a lot of later Gnostic traditions. Dylan Burns' article on the paraphrase of Shem, which is the libertine talk about the beast. But for the most part, that was mostly Platonism. Because in Plato, I think, is uh, Timaeus or Phaedrus or whatever. He talks about the idea of a Demiurge because he's like, well... Obviously, infinity can't just make something. There has to be, you know, in between. And so the Demiurge creates this world, which is seen as good, according to Celsus. And he uh, makes mankind, and he probably doesn't sexually assault any women. At least I don't think so. But really, the idea of like yeah, a second pre-submission of the Greeks, it might be young boys. <laughs> yeah, yeah probably. Um, Actually, you know what? Maybe. I mean, the Platonists were really against that sort of thing. They're like, no, that's a metaphor. It's a valid point. Yeah, it's like you know, I'm sure that, uh, you know, I'm sure that in some Texan Orphism, you know, the demiurge Phanes, you know, who is decided the universe is absolutely turning into a snake and getting laid. But, you know, I think that, like, plotness would be like, that's a metaphor. How dare you say that about my gods? <laughs> but, yeah, I mean, the idea of a demiurge is someone who, like, does that is just really, really old. It's really old. You know, like, uh, that there's a head god, and the head god says, hey, make your god, make the earth. Because, you know, the head god is seen as the king or the high priest or the mayor or something, and seeing as, well, who makes things? The craftsman. There has to be a craftsman god, and he makes everything. But how you feel about that craftsman god sort of really depends on how you feel about the world at the moment. Yeah, and no, I always find it really fascinating too. I mean, the you know, obviously the socioeconomical conditions of the Greeks, especially um, you know, at the time when Neoplatonism was really popular versus uh when Gnosticism, you know, was really catching on in Alexandria, obviously. Um they weren't writing quite as high at that point, and in general, classical civilization uh was starting to crumble uh, around those times. So I mean, I think that no doubt also led to maybe more of an apocalyptic bent on some of the latter Gnostic works. Yep. Well, how about some of the more comparatively recent accounts of the Watchers, such as those uh, somewhat mentioned, like in the Hermetics or the Bogomils? I mean, the Bogomil stuff, for example, is very much sort of a hybrid. It's a mix between the Archon seduction and that, but the Hermetic stuff, for the most part, comes in Zosimus who was a Zosimus Panopoulos, who was an Egyptian alchemist. And he says, you know, that these angels came down and they taught humans bad alchemy, but somehow maybe they taught us good alchemy. It's really confusing about, you know, whether these beings were 
bad or neutral or maybe even kind of good. I mean, later on, he says these things are not the real gods. They pretend to be, but they're not the real gods. And, you know, they, they're what's worshipped in Egypt now as opposed to the Golden Age, which we don't really know what that means. But, you know, it's also possible that he thought, yeah, these things are bad, but we use the knowledge for better purposes than they intended us to use it for. Zosimus of Monopolis in the Book of Enoch by uh, Kyle Fraser, Alchemist of the Knowledge. I mean, it, it does talk about this. Though. It's like, you know, he seems to flip-flop back and forth on whether these things are good. And uh, in uh, one story from Zosimus, he uh, mentions that, uh, you know, Isis, who we think he's describing as like a, a, a at least semi-mortal woman, is you know, hanging out on Earth. <laughs> And an angel comes and is, you know, is like, hey, I'll sleep with you. And in exchange, I'll give you the secret. And she's like, nah, you're, you ain't shit. And then a bigger angel comes down um, who's called Omniel or Amaniel shows up. And she does sleep with him. And he teaches her the arts of alchemy in exchange for sex. And she gives birth to Horus. Who, if you want to combine this with other accounts of Zosimos, you know, it it would also imply that Horus is one of the Nephilim or Rephaim or something. And Amaniel, if you don't get the reference, is probably based on Amun, uh, the Egyptian god, the ram god. Interesting. All right, uh, let's just start going back then, way back, uh, all the way back to Samaria for, to start with. All right, so do they have any such traditions or other nearby civilizations? Is this where a figure like uh, Kurenta fits in? Uh, yeah, I mean, this is really important just to show that this is a very old idea of like, you know, the especially in the Near East, the younger god who throws his lot in with chaos who was cast from heaven. You know, you have Kurunta and the Hittites um, sphere. You have uh, uh, Athtar and, Ka- and Horanu and Canaan. In fact, uh, uh, Shalel Ben-Jahar, who's referenced, I think, Isaiah, you know, when they're describing the King of Babylon, that's specifically a reference of the fall of the god of Vetus. Uh, um... You know, there's stuff about uh, Nergal being kicked out of heaven. Nergal was the god of war in the underworld in uh, Mesopotamia. I mean, it's really just sort of a stock mytheme. These entities will oftentimes either try to destroy the cosmos or get sort of certain groups of humans to do it. Because, I mean, you know, and it's really especially important when you look at the systems of magic that they practice there, is that they thought that their power was on loan from God. And so that's fine and dandy for doing things like healing people and helping the king win wars, but they also believed in bad magicians. They're like, well, who's giving them power? That's like, you know, sometimes that could just be Enlil because he's being an asshole and Enlil's chief Sumerian god, but it's, you know, if every god is a power source and there's people using power sources for bad things, you want the antinomian bad guy power source. 
who's still less powerful than the other gods. As with most things magical, there are indications that the cult may have its origins in ancient Egypt. So, uh, that is the watchers to say. So, to start unpacking this concept, it may be useful to describe the origins of alchemy as described by Zazamoth. Zazamoth. It's fine. Um, He's been dead for thousands of years. Um, I don't think he's going to care. Okay. Well, anyway, he was a Greek alchemist living in Alexandria during either the late 3rd or early 4th century CE. So how does this fit in? Well, Zosimus refers to the, you know, is talking about alchemy. And a lot of the time in Egypt, you know, they're saying, like, we invented alchemy because everyone wanted to say they invented something because that got you more respect from the Greeks and the Romans. And I mean, we don't really know where the idea came from. There is stuff about uh, from Sumeria talking about refining people with their personal god in the same way as refining silver, using that as a metaphor. But we really don't know. In Egypt, we're master goldsmiths. So, you know, that was a trope that Isis invented alchemy and she was called the Lady of the Black Earth. And there's also people who actually think that alchemy comes from the word Kemet, which means fertile, and that you know she was the mistress of the, the perfect blackness. And you know, Zosimus, as I've said before, links the gift of alchemy specifically to uh, the idea of fallen angels, or at least angels that slept with mortal women. In fact, uh, even uh, in later books, you know, where he's more like, I'm against the Watchers. He says, these things are needed to be propitiated for various alchemical operations that he calls the timely tinkers. I mean, that is really about it, is that, you know, he's clearly familiar with the Book of Enoch. He lists, or at least a Book of Enoch. He lists it as a holy scripture. He also is uh, seems to be familiar with uh, some Gnostic ideas, in that he does mention uh, the spiritual Adam getting gang-banged by the Archons and thrown to a physical body, but we really don't know exactly if he even had a consistent thing or if there was even one Zosimus of Anopolis. It's entirely possible that you know, there are guys writing as Zosimus and they're like, yeah, you know, I'm Zosimus and I believe something different, but I'm good at alchemy, so it doesn't matter. All right, is there anything else you uh, want to add between the parallels between Zazamas's kind of concept and, um, you know, the fallen angels mythos? I, I mean, I really I really think that it, it is sort of obvious that you, know, you have angels sleeping with people and giving them secrets of metalworking, which is one of the things that Azazel, who's the head honcho, gave to them. And that these angels, you know, at least in when things were bad, were worshipped as gods and inhabiting statues. And I mean, we don't really have that exactly with the Jewish idea. The Jewish idea is, or at least the Enochian idea, is more that the giants or the Nephilim died and their spirits wandered the earth as powerful ghost demon entities. Which... You know, I mean, maybe Zosimus just 
fighting out the middlemen, but he does sort of say that you know, these things do have power. Not the power of the true god, or in his case, true god. But they still have they have powers. They have abilities to do things, and if you're going to be doing black magic, you're going to have to propitiate them. Or at least get involved with them. And I mean, I think that what Zosimus considered black magic was just alchemical schools he personally didn't like. But the idea really remains. Yeah, and no, I was going to point out, like, it, it kind of sounds like the debate over uh, in Hermeticism, you know, like the angels or whatever that were appropriate. It was kind of similar with the whole thing with magic in general. They went to the, what, the great lengths to try to, to differentiate between natural magic and uh, which derived from God and like what demonic or unnatural magic or something to that effect. So, but yes, it, it, a lot of times it basically boiled down to the individual practitioner and what he uh, did or did not approve of. Okay. So it's been theorized that the angel Amel in the this text is a Jewish adaptation of the famous Amun, Egyptian deity. Now, there are four precedents for this linkage, as I understand it. They are the Logos Ibrakos, the magical papyrus found in Paris, the sacred hidden book of Moses called Eight or Holy, a magical treaty with Hellenistic and Jewish characteristics, Contra Celsium, a work by Origins, and the Kabbalistic traditions of Almond of No. So let's start with Lagos Ibracatus. Uh Sure, yeah. I mean, Lagos Ibracatus or Logos Yes, Logos, my apologies. Okay, so Logos Ibracatus, for the most part, is... If I remember rightly, it's late antique mythical papyrus that talks about, you know, Jewish ideas in a late antique concept. And they do talk about Amonael as like a ritual working being. Because, you know, like in Jewish magic, instead of calling on the gods, you would call upon, uh, you know, angels to do things. I don't really remember exactly what spell. Amoniel was used for, but he was at least seen as like a being that you could get to do stuff for you. You know, in the same way that like you might call on the angel Raziel to uh, get secrets, or the angel Shamsiel to do something involving the sun. It wasn't really seen as a evil, exactly, in that one. He was just kind of more miserly, I guess, or something to that effect. <laughs> yeah, pretty much. Is that, you know, he's like, uh, you know, you have to really sort of butter up, up for that kind of stuff. But later on, you know, it's uh, in other books that are mentioned, like, uh, you know, the Eighth Magical Papyrus of Moses. You know, it starts to get a little more sinister. Not, not exactly, but he's like, you know, not as willing not as friendly. You know, he's clearly a big deal. Might even have some demiurgic uh, aspects. I mean, not like, you know, the demiurge, obviously. And, you know, they, there'd have to be multiple demiurges in this stuff, but There's that. And then, you know, by the time you get to, like, uh, the Al-Kushimoni and a lot of Kabbalah, you do have Amun of No as an actual demon. He is an enemy of God and man. It's a little yeah. more ambiguous, like, in this. Yeah, it's 
Yes, more. He's, he's more of a demon. I mean, he's literally. I think by the time of like you get into Kabbalah and the medieval era, he's, you know, he's he's already a demon. He's up there with Samael. You know, he's actually uh In Yoku Shimoni, I think they really change the idea of uh, how uh, he was sort of a gave alchemy to humans that it was specifically unwillingly is that they were using these secrets, you know, the alchemy, and God, the God, bound him with chains and forced him to give up the secrets to mankind. I mean, there's other stuff, too, that just, you know, has him as uh, this demonic entity, and, you know, later on, uh, I mean, if you want to get into his connection with Ares, which is a lot more sort of subtle, because, like, you know, I mean... Omniel stuff for the most part is just like he's a demon, he's bad, he's powerful. He's like either on par with Samael or Samael's second command. But the stuff with Ares is a lot more interesting because you know, if you don't know Ares is the Ram Star, it's you know the star that late antiquity was considered uh you know analogous with Amun. And in that, they also sort of mention uh, that Ares is bad. But Ares is the bad aspect of Nemirs, especially in Abelophia. Like, you know, like there's a good side of the Nemirge, you know, like a good aspect, which is represented by, I think, Libra, and a bad aspect, which is represented by uh, Ares. And there's also stuff that talks what about... The, what were the personifications of those, by the way? Libra was like, what, a lion or something like that? And um... Libra was the scales. Okay, okay. Ares was the ram. And there's also stuff, and I think... Uh, I think it... I'm not sure whose commentary on the tour it was. It has to go up to Safaria to get it, because it's there. But it did mention, I think this is a popular idea, um, that one of the forces that were keeping the Hebrews enslaved in Egypt was the constellation Aries, because Aries was the constellation of Egypt and the constellation of everything bad in the material world. I think there might be something that does seem to, uh, like some Kabbalistic treaties that does seem to associate Amania with Aries, because, which I think is also in Abelophia. Okay, so the sacred and hidden books of Moses and the Contracelsum were kind of like stepping stones between, um, uh, was it Logos, Sibrikos, and uh, the later Kabbalistic traditions. Is there anything else you wanted to add about them? Well, for the most part, Contracelsum was really just sort of a barometer that was, you know, like, because Contracelsum was basically just this, uh, you know, Celsus and, uh, you know, this other guy. Uh, talking about, you know, like, this is why Christianity is bad, and this is what the Jews believe, and this is what the Platonists believe, and obviously Christianity doesn't line up with either, so fuck it. That's really just more of a bookmark on what people thought of the fallen angels, rather than, you know, a connection to the idea of the Watchers and Amun in particular. 
Do you want to get into uh, the cult of Serapis for a moment, which may have been a crucial transmutation point for Amun as a demon? So uh, first off, where did the Serapis cult come from? Actually, I'm going to go back a bit because I think one okay. of the things that's really going to sort of solidify this is the way that uh, Amun of No is described in a way is that you know, he's described as seated and holding the cross, which, you know, might just be like Jewish, like saying like God, you know, this is for the most part medieval. So it's like God, Christians are idolaters, right? Right. And they're also holding a bow, which is another aspect of Amun. So they are describing him. I'm sorry. So yeah, no, this is like, I'm on the L. If you read the Kabbalistic iconographies, it's definitely Amun. That's like just a fact. Sorry, what were you going to say? Oh, I was just uh, getting into asking about the cult of Serapis, but if you want to continue with Amun, no. No, 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 that's fine. Uh, Serapis was... We're not really sure where Serapis came from. Um, We know that Serapis was sort of a a big deal. In Egypt, he was, you know, the god of the Ptolemies. No, the what was the physical description? He was sort of like, uh, by the way, uh, he was sort of like a chimera or something like that, right? Not, not really. He actually okay. just sort of looked like a bearded guy. Okay, okay, okay. Yeah, Serapis was, um, no, he looked like a bearded guy with like a plant pot in his head, which I mean, actually is interesting because it does look like some depictions of a uh, Balhamon. Who is also related to Amun? Now, if you want to look, because he's also looks like a guy wearing a potted plant on his head. But yeah, so I mean, the one that was a chimera was for the most part like guys like Agathodamon, who was sort of like you know a man's head in the snake body, or Abraxas, who we're all familiar with, or Chinubis, who's the lion-headed serpent. You know, Serapis was pretty boring looking. He was just a guy. But, you know, what we do know is that Serapis was a composite deity of a bunch of things, you know, like Zeus, Osiris, Hades, the Apis bull. And he was, uh, you know, both lord of the underworld and really lord of everything because the Ptolemy want to say, you know, our god is the best. We think that we don't really know where his name comes from. Some people say, well, Alexander saw him in Babylon. And so, you know, his name was uh, actually just a corruption of the word Sar Absu or Lord the Absu, so it's just Anki. But other people aren't so sure. Some people say the statue came from a Asian Minor around the area of Troy. We, we really don't know. And, you know, he was really, really much more close to like Hades than any of the other Greek gods. And, you know, he also had some sort of Christ like iconography. You know, it's a bearded man who helps you uh, do things and resurrects the dead and heals you. It almost seems like there's maybe an air of motives <clears throat> as well to it. Or no? Well, I mean, the thing is that like all the Greek gods, and this was much more of like Greek, like, you know, we're not going to worship fucking animal. Because you have that um, Greek stuff, especially Roman stuff, making fun of this and saying like, you know, yeah, the Egyptians worship fucking snakes. And like, you know, cows and so like no we're gonna make our gods look like us so they're gonna you know Serapis is gonna look like zeus moses was for the most part uh actually identified with thoth 
And in fact, uh, the Jewish God, when they weren't um, identified with Seth, because all foreign gods they could get away with were identified with Seth. It's like, you know, everyone's like, oh my God, you know, should we maybe be questioning this? And it's like, the Egyptians called every foreign god Seth. Baal was Seth, Marduk was Seth. For a short period of time, Zeus was Seth. But yeah, Moses is the Hebrew god, and Adam was, you know, associated with Thoth. And we know that Moses actually had a sort of, I don't know if it would be a cult or a movement, but it's described in Joshua Cutchin's book, The Ecology of Souls, that like he had this movement as a psychopomp, which just sort of makes him more connected with Thoth than Anubis. And the Adam, the celestial Adam in Asasimus, is also tied in with Thoth. They say, like, you know, um, the Egyptians called the spiritual Adam Thoth, the Chaldeans and the Jews, they call him Adam, or Alanis or Adapa. All right, is there uh, anything else on uh, the origin of the Serpus cult? We can get into the stuff about... You should probably point out, too, like with the Ptolemies, they were actually the Greek pharaohs. Um, uh, Ptolemy, the first one, had been one of Alexander's generals. Uh, So that was kind of another factor, too, whether it would have been the ongoing obsession with importing the kind of Greek images uh, onto the Egyptian gods and that kind of thing. Yeah, I mean, it, we do, I mean, it is weird. It, it, Serapis is really interesting because we do have this idea that he's, you know, an underworld god. <clears throat> has a lot of connections to Dionysus. He does replace Osiris. And, you know, if we're assuming that the myth of, you know, because, like, in the Greek idea, and especially in the late antiquity, you know, the Egyptian gods, or at least the Egyptian gods like Isis, Osiris, Horus, Seth, Anubis, were all thought of as being sort of semi-immortal, more like demigods or angels at first, who sort of rose to godhood like Heracles, rather than like proper gods like, you know, uh, Zeus or Tefnut or whatever. And so, I mean, seeing as Serapis was the consort of Isis who gave birth to Horus or in the Greek word Harpocrates it would be entirely possible that you know the fallen angel story about Amanio you know the angel who comes down Isis entices to fuck her was maybe added on to Serapis and really what, what's crazy is that we actually get a much more explicit connection between uh, the Nephilim or the fallen angels and uh, the Watchers in this uh, Christian Egyptian late antique uh, historian called Panadorus, who I think was writing either in the 5th and 4th century. He goes on to say that, no, the sons of God met sons of Seth who married the daughter of Cain. There's daughters of man, but that's not really obviously not true. And he says, you know, these were the Egyptian gods. They were culture heroes and they ruled Egypt for a certain amount of time. Like I think in uh, Manetho's story where they list, you know, the gods as mortal kings. And so he's like, well, obviously, because I'm a Christian and I want to say that Egypt still has special powers. These were the watchers. These were, you know, the beings described in the sons of God and daughters of men. 
who were the Egyptian gods, and they were actually pretty okay guys, at least at first. Uh, now, out of curiosity, um, did any of, like, because you always hear a lot about Ptolemy and Ptolemaic Egypt, did any of Alexander's other generals, like Seleucid uh, and his dynasty, try to do anything like this, you know, with the kind of syncretism of, like, the different uh, religions and so forth? I don't think they really did it to that extent. I think that, like, you know, um, Seleucus, for example, would just be like, you know, uh, all right, we're calling Marduk Zeus. Their goal is either Heracles or Hades. You know, maybe they would have, like, thrown them a little bit of a bone by calling it, like, this Zeus is Zeus Bellus. But it, they really wouldn't have, like, gone as far to make up a new god and really trying to assimilate that much to the Egyptian culture. I mean, to the local culture as he did in other places. Yeah, I mean, it's just, it's really fascinating to me because, I mean, the Ptolemies really were so much a part of the storied uh, metaphysical scene that played out in Alexandria, but they uh, they don't really seem to get a lot of credit for it, or at least as much as they should, even though they had really um, created a lot of these uh these different hybrids and so forth uh it's it's really fascinating and i've often wondered uh, i mean if it was just the fact that they felt that it was necessary in egypt or if they just had a uh, a special interest in this kind of thing um certainly it seems like it was an ongoing preoccupation of the family as well i think it was probably they thought it was necessary in egypt because if you listen to the last project podcast egypt did not like foreigners um I like compared to everywhere else even there was a lot of xenophobia and so they didn't have to make some accommodations to the culture because you know one egypt was where a lot of grain was made so it was an economic powerhouse two because of the philosophers they respected it and three they they just were like we have to acquiesce to these people at least a little bit so that they you know don't just revolt the minute we set foot there uh, 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 did you have anything else no i was gonna go back to you about the ptolemies and the almond is that you know you're not i know you're familiar but uh you know who else was the son of almond oh, who's that alexander the great ah yes 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 so often associate himself with the ram's horns too yes yeah there's a you know there's a part where he goes to an article uh an oasis <clears throat> I think in Siwa, and he's like, you know, uh, hey, who's my dad? And you know, Empire Strike Back style, the woman says it's it's Amun, and you know, Amun went down and uh, you know did his mother Olympias in the form of serpent. And we actually do know that his mother uh, Olympias was involved in the serpent cult, and that it wasn't it and wasn't she from originally, by the way. Uh, they're all Macedonian. Okay, they were all Macedonians. Okay, so that's interesting. So, because this, this was more of an Egyptian cult, right? Yeah, yeah. I mean, to be fair, Amun was already making uh, some headway in. Uh, but was Serapis? Serapis didn't exist yet, but oh, Amun. Okay. Yeah. Okay, she was part of an Amun cult. Okay, okay. Yeah, maybe. Or at least a cult that was sort of syncretized with Amun. Like a weird sort of Zeus is the Catholic Earth Serpent cult that was syncretized with Amun. And I mean, we do have stuff, I think from like Sparta where it's like they're worshiping Amun 
at least 200 years before Alexander the Great. So it's possible. Really? That's interesting. Uh, or did you have anything else to uh, add with Alexander? Not really. Really, I mean, what really ties this in is specifically the Nephilim and the Rephaim and all that stuff with Amun is, and especially the Egyptian gods, is the way they're consorting with mortals treated. Specifically the the fucking of mortals. Maybe we're going to cover this later, but I think this is really important, is that, you know, a lot of people claim, oh, I'm descended from a god, I have descent from, you know, the pure seed from before the flood, like a lot of the Mesopotamians did, and that would be more claiming descent from Enoch himself. You know, when it's like very diluted god blood. But in Egypt, at least from the Middle Kingdom or New Kingdom onward, like the very early New Kingdom onward, it was that Amun showed up and he screwed the pharaoh's wife in the form of the pharaoh or possessed the pharaoh and he gave birth to a demigod son in exchange for like you know cosmological constants this was like a very important right is this you know male god impregnating this queen to give birth to his semi-divine son that's you know very very different from a lot of what you get in the Levant and in Syria, Mesopotamia, where it's, you know, the man lays with the female goddess like Ishtar and Ninsun. Or, you know, like you have the whole story of Demuzid, and you have at least an attempt made on Gilgamesh, though. Gilgamesh famously turns Ishtar down. And so, I mean, obviously, if, you know, you want a culture that's like, we have this entity that goes down and does this all the time to make, you know, like special children. And these give us special magic powers. It would be Egypt. And even a Horus wasn't really born naturally. He was in Isis was impregnated by a Osiris's ghost. Because like, if you read the story, she, she, she screws his corpse. You know, she was not conceived when she was he was alive. But wasn't even his his corpse per se. It was his uh, what his member wasn't it, or did she reattach everything? I think it was no. It was I. She reattached everything. His we're not sure if his dick was swallowed by a fish in the original version, or if it was still there. But she reattached his corpse together. And then she uh, lay with his corpse, and then she gave birth to Horus. And so there is this idea in Egyptian culture of like spirit impregnation as an everyday event. Yeah, I mean, it almost kind of seems a bit like the traditions of like incubus and succubus and what have you that caught on later in medieval Europe and that kind of thing. No, I mean, totally, because it, it, especially with these gods that are more like, you know, demigods. And it, it's crazy because I remember, you know, it's like uh, these th these beings, you know, as could be very chaotic. And, you know, and uh, violent. I mean, there's... Uh, let me get, pull up the article I said. I'm sorry. I'm so sorry. I just I like the source myself. Okay, you're fine, you're fine. My academic uh, 
side showing because I just I need to like you know make sure I'm not just pulling from bullshit. It's important to know that you're <laughs> you're telling the truth. If there's this idea that you know in the beginning it's like all these entities were fighting, all of them were killing each other, and not like in like you know like a war between the gods and the titans way. It's like you know, Thoth was helping to kill Osiris. Um, Horus was cutting Isis's head off. Thoth is being tried. It, it, it was really just like a chaotic free for all until Horus basically imposed martial law on these beings. And in fact, we even get stuff where uh, Thoth goes and uh, dismembers Osiris's corpse. Well, all right. <clears throat> Excuse me. Um, so, all right. How does the um, the Serapis cult tie into the concept of Amun as a demon and just the general concept of Amun? We've been, in fact, you might want to kind of take us through the progression of Amun as a demon as we're kind of been discussing a little bit earlier here. I mean, it was uh, something that was celebrated by, I mean, uh, noble houses in uh, Macedonia before Alexander's conquest. So uh, it seems like it... Uh, it went through some dramatic reversals of fortune, to put it mildly. Oh, of course. Well, Serapis was an underworld god, you know, in Egypt as opposed to Greece. You no, know, because Hades wasn't really the master of demons or even ghosts. That would be more like, you know, Hecate or Melanoe or even Dionysus. He was involved, but he wasn't really the guy. He just sort of really made sure that they stayed there. And Serapis, like Osiris, and seeing as he was syncretized with everything in Egypt, he was syncretized with Amun, was seen as Lord of the Underworld. And in Egypt, that also meant the guy who dispatched demons and vicious beasts to the living world. And so, you know, if you have, I mean, granted, this was like part of Osiris's aspect since maybe the Middle Kingdom. I'm not really sure. But there are bits where in the contendings of Horus and Seth where, you know, Osiris threatens the rest of the gods and is like, hey, don't let my son be king. I'm going to send up a bunch of demons to Earth and they're going to fuck up everything. And so, you know, at first they're like, okay, you know, we can control these demons. Things are good. Everything's going great for the Ptolemies and their family, uh, their family bush. Or maybe it's their family like circle because they inbred a lot. That's cool. And we get these powers and everything's great. But, you know, as time went on and Chthonic harmful demons took on a more and more malevolent role. Now, I mean astral demons, like, you know, like the kind of Plato talks, but I, I mean, like, you know, entities that are dangerous, entities that are ambiguous, entities that are, you know, tied to the dead and can be used in these magical operations that do illicit things. You know, like make someone love you or kill someone or. Uh, give your chariot racer you don't like uh, hemorrhoids that hang from his ass like rapes. Actual quote. You know, at first that's good because, like, oh, we're a capital society, everything's great. But shit gets more and more bad, and you're like, why is the world so awful? You know, there's paranormal entities coming in, there's Christianity, which is saying, you know, demons are bad, there's Zoroastrianism, which is coming and saying devas are bad. And then they're like, you know, maybe the guy who's in charge of all this is bad 
and, you know, at least to a Christian or to someone who's Christianized or to someone agnostic or one of the more doom and gloom Platonists, it would be like, maybe Serapis is bad because he's, you know, he's, he's the master of demons. And it's like, you know, I mean, I think it took a while longer for Amun to do it because Amun was Zeus. You know, Amun. But, you know, it was also true that Amun was also related to Kronos. And so, you know, when you got... As I don't really want to compare him to Hades because Hades gets a bad rap and they said Hades wasn't the master of demons. When you get like a mix between like male Hecate and Kronos in a time when like the Chthonic and the Nightside elements were looked at as bad. It's just, it's going to be like, you know, more and more, especially Christianity kicks in the seven core. It's going to be like, maybe this guy isn't so great. Now, besides incubation, dreams are another important means of contacting this deity, as you've already been alluded to. Um, so what were some of the actual like processes that you would go about uh, to do this? Because this seems like a really fascinating uh, means of uh, channeling. Yeah, so uh, for the most part, um, I mean, it depends. Because in the earlier kingdom, we don't really know what they did. We think they actually performed opening of the mouth on the king. To like do it like in the pre-Greek era, but in the Greek era for the most part, it was like you know, a lot of it would involve either dream incubations where you know you drink something, and you know go to sleep and the god would enter, or you know you sort of use a mirror to get yourself into a trance. And you know, I think at least in Serapis, because and maybe Amun later on, because in this version Amun takes the form of a snake. Um, you know, these places would be covered in snakes. And you go into this temple that's filled with fucking snakes. Harmless snakes, but you're still filled with snakes. You go to sleep. I'm almost like picturing Raiders of the Lost Ark here, man. Yeah, no, yeah, I mean, that, that would be a good way of doing it. I mean, uh, without all the legless lizards. I don't think those lived in Egypt. Or the New World snakes. Or the pythons. But yeah, you know, just imagine sleeping down there, okay? And, you know, you'd do that. And then Amon would show up to you in a dream, and he'd be like, you know, either I'm going to reveal the future to you, or, hey, what do you want me to do for you? And that isn't just the stuff where the person, you know, gets to a trance state and says, I am so-and-so god, including Amon or Serapis. And, you know, you, other supernatural entity, have to do this because I am your boss now. But, I mean, for the most part, it would have been, you know, stuff that is still familiar to us today. Because, really, we see the origins of Western magic as it is now in the Greco-Egyptian papyri. Yeah, no, I was... It was fascinating to me because it almost reminds me of this uh, process that's apparently caught on amongst today's youth known as uh, 
reality shifting. Um, but it's this dream state that they enter into and uh, they go to an elaborate process to do this is my understanding it's like a lot of times they use work as fiction and um you know you'll you'll structure something to where like you're going to go uh you know attend hogwarts for seven years so you'll write out an elaborate story about you know the seven years you're going to be in hogwarts and um you know, how you're going to meet Harry Potter and Ron and, you know, I mean, Hermione and all the other uh, characters and all this good stuff. And you're going to date Draco Malfoy and, um, you know, get him away from Severus or something like you get kind of the idea. So anyway, you I know, mean, I, I have a hard time taking it seriously. Yeah, I know, I know, I know, I know. I remember there was this one post that was like, no one can post by Harry Potter anymore because I destroyed that universe in my OC form is evil Mario, and I'm like, oh, okay. Yes, but I, it, I thought I thought other cam were stupid. This is, but it's like you you go into these these huge stories and you study those, and then uh, from what I understand, some of the kids, you know, also try to do a kind of translate state before they go to sleep. Sometimes using like subliminals through um you know specific videos that are put up for them on YouTube and what have you by other uh, kids who make them and. uh yeah, they wake up from these things feeling like that years have gone by and they have just the really elaborate uh, details of things playing out and that kind of thing. Um, but it does sort of remind me just in the sense that it seems like there was a specific kind of process you were supposed to imagine before uh, going, uh, you know, trying to fall asleep and that there was also possibly a kind of use of... Uh, some means of a you know to put you into a trance like state before going into this so that's uh definitely fascinating and how i mean this sort of process i mean it's it's you know even kind of manifested in just these really kitschy um ways to put it mildly in uh, the contemporary world uh, but yeah it does sort of show that uh, this can be again you know i mean a powerful means of accessing uh, different aspects of the subconscious or possibly something else i mean it's entirely possible if you take a jungian idea that the subconscious leads to doors to other places i mean you know i'm a firm believer in uh in the works of not the historical works of Colin Wilson, because he falls in with, you know, Graham Hancock and the like, but I'm, I'm a firm believer in a lot of the cosmological ideas of Colin Wilson. And, you know, Jack Foley and Guy Playfair, and I think it's entirely possible. I do want to go back, though, to, like, the idea of Egyptian gods as the Watchers and Nephilim. I think this is a really important bit that we should probably go to. Oh, yeah. Well, it's the whole point of the show. I mean, yeah, exactly. It's that, you know, because... uh, but, yeah, it was, you know, I didn't mean to get too sidetracked. There, no, it's yes, totally, yes. totally All right. fine. All right. So the, the Jewish tradition of fallen angels is found in uh, was the Yaakov uh, Shimoni. God, just... That was the one where um, the angels were specifically bound. Uh, and this was by our old pal Zazimos. Uh, so, what does he tell us about it in this? Uh, well, this was not by Zazimos. This is like one of okay, that's right. It closely parallels. Okay, yeah, it parallels Zazimos, but this was way later, like 16th to 18th century. I have a hard time with uh, exact times. I think it was 17th century, though it was entirely possible. It's based on older traditions, where you know, Samael and Amun were thrown to the earth and bound with chains, and then they're like, "Hey, humans." Take everything they know. And God was totally cool with this. And then we did it, and it was like, yay. 
Yeah, humans. Now we don't have to use them as middlemen to be able to work metal. And do shit like, you know, sacrifice a baby every time you want to fix a cup. But I mean, you know, that is interesting that, you know, it's sort of this weird reworking of the Prometheus idea. And I mean, even Enoch can be seen as sort of a oddly Promethean figure because, you know, as yeah, much absolutely. as the Watchers gave knowledge, so did Enoch. And Enoch, it seems, at least I think in second Enoch, did go against at least a fair majority of the powers that be to make the Earth a safe place for living humans. You know, uh, I mean, so there is that sort of interesting, weird Prometheanism that, like, they're either giving bad knowledge, they were giving faulty knowledge, they were giving knowledge with a catch or something. And so, you know, like the highest power throw these mid level guys down to Earth and uh, messes them up. And I mean, in Enoch, we, we shouldn't get anything from the Fallen Angels. They're like, you know, all the things they teach us are BS. Even Zosimus says that. But here they're like, you know, we can use the things they know as long as we are doing it for the sake of God and they are, you know, safely constrained. Which I think is really even more of a Promethean idea is that, you know, stealing fire from the Archons, in a way. And I mean, going back to this idea of uh, Amun as the Demiurge, which I, Peter Mark Adams talks about in Game of Saturn, is that, you know, we have this, uh, a lot of the stuff in Genesis 1 is really, really similar to the ideas found in, you know, the creation story that involves Amon and the Ogdoad in Egypt. And so you have, like, you know, wind, and darkness, and all that other great stuff. What's really interesting is that in the Kabbalistic tradition, Elohim, in an emanationist sense, is the alienated, blind, idiot god who is associated with Ares. As a Poised to uh, Yad Vavhe, who is sort of the true aspect. <clears throat> and in the original version, we get this idea that Elohim, or perhaps even Amun, if we're going with the Aries connection, makes a version of the Earth, but it's wrong. It's like a fucked up first attempt. And like in Canaanite mythology, Adam has to go in and fix it. I mean, this isn't like an explicit connection because there are no, there are very few explicit statements like this, but there, there are hints. And there are like very small leaps. So I think the sort of connection too with the interplanetary stuff, I mean, obviously it was much more pronounced in some of the Jewish traditions, but I mean, you see it appearing in a lot of the other ones as well. Um, it's kind of like this reoccurring theme that, um, different planets and stellar alignments and things like that have you know for lack of a better term a consciousness that uh can be accessed either from you know human consciousness ascending through the uh, celestial spheres to it or i mean drawing down this consciousness into some kind of vessel on the earthly plane um is that your sense or 
Yeah, I mean that that's definitely like a thing that's been around since I I, I think Egypt and Mesopotamia. I mean, uh, in the Renaissance, which is a lot later, but I think that if there was any kind of satanic or Luciferian whatever organization that was like really an organization and not just like a couple guys, it would probably start in the Renaissance. Now there are people saying like, yeah, Christianity is just as it works now because we're in the A on the Mercury, but then it's going to be the A on the Moon. Shit's going to be different. I mean, new religion. I mean, some people like Geronimo, uh, Freighter Geronimo, not the Native American war chief, were like, that just means a new kind of Christianity. But other people are like, like Plaython, for example, be like, nah, the celestial intelligence of the moon is going to blow Christianity out of water. Fuck Mercury. As said, the Watchers, especially in the Enoch course, they weren't really related to the planets because we have the planets as a positive force in that. You know, we have the seven archangels sort of govern the cosmos, but they are related to the stars and the constellations in the Zodiac, which are also thought to, you know, have influence. Well, yeah, well, I mean, also in a lot of uh, ancient accounts, I mean, it was thought that the um, the human soul would return to some of the constellations, a lot of cases, the Milky Way uh, upon death. So, I mean, that's also sort of a component of this as well. Uh, by the way, what tradition is the Yakoth um, Shimona in any way? Is it like a capitalistic? Okay, it's a capitalistic word. European specifically. But what I was going to do is actually uh, read some bits on sort of, because the idea of the Egyptian gods was the Nephilim were the fallen angels is really interesting. And of course the Egyptians would have made this connection, but I think it would have been very, very interesting. And I'm going to read a bit from uh, Lucas Bach Manzano's article, Thoth from the shadows of power, which is on academia.edu for free. You should read it if you're, and this is what he has to say about these uh, accusations against Thoth and some of the other benevolent gods. The alluded turmoil among gods, which you find, for example, in Pyramid Text 486, will start once creation had taken place. And after that, the opposition and consequently the conflict. In such a process, the passage Pyramid Text 46, 1041 to 1042, focuses on primeval times, where the justice of the king was not present yet. And thus, the great corporation of gods, i.e. the great Ennead of Heliopolis, could act with autonomy following their own interests according to their particular criteria. In this context, the acts were submitted to opposite tensions and reparation, as well as satisfaction for any grievance undergone was vindicated violently. Thus, according to the pyramid text, chaos and turmoil existed among the first generation of gods before justice, Ma'at, was imposed. In this context, law, from which the demiurge was a unique source, was out of its range of influence, as it did not prevail and violence took its place. Consequently, the violent competition for power will make any hierarchy unfeasible, and more importantly, will make any possible plea on genealogy rights or primogeniture useless. In other words, violence makes any sphere of social differentiation uniform. From Emic approach, the myth about Cyrus reveals an outstanding aspect already from the origin. Leadership can only be attained by means of force, as authority lent on violence and post quarter progressed outside justice. Ma'at. Some mythological sources, as for instance the so-called Tribulation of Geb, inscribed in the 30th Dynasty now from Ismailia, show us how already from primeval times hostility marked the end of the reigns among gods. Then acts contrary to hierarchy and status well from times of God's shoe, becoming the general tone for the mission of power. In such a situation, even Osiris himself will appear participating actively as the leader of a rebellion against Geb, who is the Earth God. 
and it must be stressed that as a consequence of it, Osiris would meet his first death in the hands of his father. And so basically what this means is that if that sounds familiar to you, you get this idea of Osiris as rebellious fallen god. Because all of them were. At least all the ones who were running around on Earth. And do we have time to talk about exactly what the Ogdoad, who Am was a part of, were? Uh, yeah, yeah, go for it, man. Okay, rad. Because it's just, I mean, I know this is sort of like an annoying spiel, but it's also very, very important for understanding this. Oh, go for it, go for it, man. Is that uh, the Ogdoad, if you don't know, were uh, eight primeval powers who were somewhat subordinate to Thoth or Atum. And they were depicted as giant serpents and toads involved in the first creation. And then they were either died of natural causes or were killed because they were an aspect of making sure creation still worked. They're like, you know, troublesome contractors, which is very, very clear in the Cthulhu mythos you know, inspiration. And Amun was one of them. Amun means hiddenness. I mean, there's other ones like, you know, the infamous Keck who of 4chan fame, the frog god of darkness. Oh, think, really? So this was like one of these... That's fascinating. Yeah, no, I mean, this was like a primordial dragon. Because, like, you know, like in modern times, when we think of, like, a primordial chaos monster, we think of an octopus. You know, in medieval times, when you thought of a demon, you thought of, like, a goat. But in the ancient Near East, when you thought of, like, primordial chaos, you thought of, like, frog... Crocodile and snake. And so the Ogduad are there, and, you know, Thoth kicks their ass. But there's a bit later on which gets really Lovecraftian, which says that at the end of the world, Atum, the creator god, is going to reawaken the Ogduad and they're going to destroy everything besides Osiris and return the world to primordial chaos. And this is specifically takes part in Osiris' resurrection, which I think is just. Bizarre, and there's also, uh, which is even more Lovecraftian in my opinion, because it's like this idea that, like, you know, they lie not dead but sleeping. And there are these texts that reference these beings as like physical beings under Egypt that are asleep. In fact, uh, one of them is in the uh, book of Yufa. I don't know how to pronounce it, late antique, <coughs> late antique Egyptian book that mentions, you know, all these serpents on their various sites that sort of act as nexuses of power. I mean, you know, when you think of serpent, you think of like, you know, uh, like just a big snake, but serpent really just sort of meant reptile-ish in these contexts. You know, there's like references to serpents like eight limbs and lion heads and all sorts of other stuff. And so, you know, we have this idea then that Amun, at least in his original form, would have been some kind of frog monster. A deep one. So this is just really fascinating. Like, um, how was there some kind of relation between the Ogdoed and the uh the more well-known Enid, uh, which were later, of course, incorporated into um the whole mythos around Buharix the Nine that later ended up in Star Trek and all this other stuff? Uh yeah. So I mean the Ennead. So if we're going to take on a, a standard like Near Eastern thing, the Ogduad, you have like Atum or the Ogduad, uh, Atum or Thoth, 
or Kanum or some kind of like main demiurgic god who comes in first. Okay. And then you have the Ogduad and the Ogduad are sort of the raw mindless engines of creation. And then from that, Atom takes them out and kills them. And then Atom or Ra or whoever has kids. And then those kids have kids. And then those kids have Gavin Nut, heaven and earth. And then they give birth to the Enyat. Which is, you know, may or may not include that. You know, those are like Horus, Seth, Osiris, etc. The Earthborn gods. These aren't like sky gods. These wouldn't, you know, these would have been the gods who walked around on Earth, you know, lived in palaces once, who ruled Egypt once. You know, it's physical beings. Yeah, I'm seeing the Octodon, uh, besides like the sky, they were also associated with the primordial waters, correct? Yep, okay. they were. In fact, that's actually one of the things the Egyptian doomsday idea is that they're going, uh, they lie not dead but sleeping, and that they're going to rejuvenate themselves and return the world back to their primordial swimming pool where they can do giant frog things. I mean, it's incredible because, I mean, especially when you see how this stuff has been reborn in uh, pop culture uh, in the second half of the 20th century going into the 21st century, as I had alluded to before, I mean, a lot of the... Uh, the, well, I mean, obviously, you know, for those of you who are not familiar uh, with the story, and I think it was New Year's Eve, 1952, um, a scientist of reputable uh, reputation or debatable reputation, I should say, Adriana Puhari conducted the uh, so-called seance that changed the world uh, with a um, Indian guru. And I think there was well, one other person at that one. And then there was later another seance done in 53 that included a lot of, this is the more well-known one that included a lot of the uh, American blue blood dynasties, like the Astors and the DuPonts and those kinds of people. Uh, but anyway, um, they were contacted by these entities that referred to themselves as the Nine. And it seems at a later point, uh, I believe after he had discovered magic mushrooms, which uh, apparently had been led to, I think, by a spirit guide, uh, allegedly who was a part of the Aeneid or something like that. Uh, he came to equate them with these uh, Egyptian deities, Thoth and Osiris and so forth. And gradually this caught on in a lot of uh, interesting circles. Um, Gene Roddenberry of Star Trek fame was probably the most well-known, and there are a lot of uh, hints of the nine kind of cosmology incorporated into the Star Trek franchise. Uh, Christopher Knowles written, has written some really interesting stuff about the uh, influence that they likely had on the Outer Limits as well uh, in terms of the ideology. Um, Buri Geller was a channeler for these, you know, alleged beings for several years. Um, and then, of course, Puharic later wrote uh, the biography of him named Yuri in 74, which was the first time that the uh, public at large really uh, was exposed to this whole milieu. But uh, even though it's not really acknowledged as such, I mean, you know, this peculiar belief system has manifested a lot in pop culture in recent years and obviously we're <clears throat> we've witnessed you know a kind of similar parallel with the whole thing with Keck uh and the alt-right uh in the 21st century during the 2016 elections so um you know again I don't know what that means if anything but it's 
it's it's certainly fascinating that these archetypes, I mean, have found a way to uh, almost reinvent themselves in contemporary America, if you will. Well, yeah, they're they're not exactly. Uh, they seem to be very. I mean, if you read a uh, Lynn Pickett's work, they seem to be very right wing in weird ways, and they seem to be sort of at least intent on causing trouble, which is makes sense because the Egyptian cosmology sort of has a very sort of Adam Smith way of looking at the gods where it takes a lot of them to balance each other out. And if, you know, only a couple of them show up, shit's going to get fucked. Well, right. Uh, to wrap up, let's uh, get into something you've been hinting at uh, here a lot, and obviously one of my favorite topics, and that is H.P. Lovecraft. So, you know, how do you see, uh, more broadly speaking, some of these concepts being adopted into the whole uh, uh, mythos that's grown up around Lovecraft's old ones and that kind of thing? It seems like the notion of the Watchers has become crucial in these uh, emerging uh, mythos that has been perpetuated by these circles. Well, I think that the idea is the Watchers is that this is sort of where it ties in to Christianity and Abrahamic faiths beyond like obscure Kabbalistic concepts. <laughs> is you know, I mean, in Lovecraft's work, from you know everything from uh, from the Dunwich Horror to you know Shadow over Innsmouth, you have this idea of gods coming down or these entities coming down and procreating with human women and having these messed up super children. And I mean, you know, that was sort of a thing for a while, especially with Crowley's idea of the star child. And, you know, I mean, there's even what's really interesting is that uh, in, I think, Second Enoch and some of the Kabbalistic texts, the way that Azazel was actually let into the world was ritual sex between Adam and Eve. It seems less like he was conceived and more like he was, you know, done some let in through the door as, you know, ritual sex is a gateway to these other worlds. And, you know, it's like, well, seeing as, you know, there's a big shortage of physical giant fish stick. I think that was sort of what happened because we're like, hey, these things are powerful. We can use them. But, I mean, yeah, that really is where the watchers come in, because it's like, you know, I mean, the Bible is something that people know about. It has a certain cultural power that other myths, at least in the Western world, don't. Like, you know, manipulating biblical scene or, uh, symbolism has a much more large effect than, like, manipulating a picture of, say, Zeus or Osiris. Not that those aren't powerfully also, but it's like just to really get like a visceral reaction. You know, you manipulate those imagery to create, especially Christian imagery, to create changes in consciousness. And so I think that the Watchers, as something that's becoming more and more mainstream in Christianity and in Abrahamic religion in general, is a good way to sort of get that cultural power into their made-up mythos. It's also <clears throat> kind of curious to me, too, I mean, just sort of the revival in um, Egyptology and the West. Um, 
I think a lot of it in contemporary, you know, at least fairly contemporary times, at least started with um, Napoleon's campaigns in Egypt, uh, which got us you know, fresh access to a lot of the uh, Egyptian uh, monuments and so forth. And um, I know there was actually a rather bizarre uh, order that was created, the Sophician order uh, by several military leaders, Egyptologists, scientists, writers, and artists who had uh, been involved in um uh, Napoleon's campaign. Uh, it's a topic I've been looking at wanting to investigate more, but uh, this group really seems to have been instrumental in spreading a broader notion of Egyptology into uh, some of the latter uh, occult circles that sprung up in the latter part of the late 19th century. And of course, you know, as you know, as well as I and, um, you know, I mean, Crowley was absolutely obsessed with the whole concept of Egypt and Kenneth Grant, uh, one of his major uh, uh, <clears throat> accolades and uh, keepers of the torch, so to speak, even more so. Uh, so, yeah, it's just sort of fascinating as well how, I mean, a lot of this stuff, especially like in the last couple of years, is really experience, comparatively speaking, I mean, the last two centuries, I guess I should say, has had this kind of significant resurgence, especially in the West as well. Um, and like you're saying, I mean, now we're kind of seeing a climax of it with. Uh, the mainstreaming if you will the watchers and uh well i mean also too the sort of bizarre thing where you're seeing it uh springing up in both a lot of fundamentalist christian circles but i mean also you know kind of the popularization of angel magic and those kinds of concepts by people like damien echoes and what have you as well so it, it's very much in the air everywhere right now it seems like oh definitely all right, sir. Uh, was there anything else you uh, wanted to add before we wrap up here? Uh, yeah. It's just the last thing is that uh, you should read the books um, of Andre Orlov, or the papers of Andre Orlov on the Zazel. His realm is described as a massive furnace, and in the Egyptian cosmogony, the massive furnace is specifically the rebirth of Osiris. In other places, it's specifically the place where old things are created for the creation of a new order. So it's not just like, you know, this is hell, he's on fire. It's literally, this is the primordial caldera where a new thing will emerge. Either resurrected or completely new. Also, um, fundamentalist Christians probably worship Nurgle. I, I think that's... Just look at how they wanted to doomsday. There's a whole thing I have on the Jerusalem priesthood. But that's that's another time. Just, just, yeah. But if anyone's, if anyone's on Azazel's side, it's it's probably the people who are pushing for a nuclear war so they can all get the pleasure cube when they die. <laughs> <laughs> that's a great way of putting it. <laughs> all right, sir. It's always a pleasure having you on Austinies, and yeah, we'll definitely have to have you back. Uh, to talk about those sort of parallels with contemporary Christianity. I'm sure that'll be a, uh, a popular show. <laughs> oh, yeah. You know, nothing's better than having uh, you know, the kike say things about contemporary Christianity. <laughs> That's going to be great. That's going to be great. Oh, I can't wait. Oh, all right, sir. On that note, uh, we shall sign off for now. As always, I appreciate you guys for listening and your support. And with that, good night and good luck to you all.
86 from the copper queen for singing this I took it to the gold chain We were raised, my people there, they're feeling me Down low skin, roll more characters than Stephen King Said I'm just working at the quarry, y'all I ain't in a hurry, y'all Come on, baby, pick me up Out here with my wiki up Stuck down in this stick Hut is hot as hell, I tell you what Put it up and knock it down Moving on that big around Come on, mama, jump down Turn around, do it for me Stick it out, say one, two, three Geronimo, jump, baby, we gotta go Hands tied, blindfold Jump into that battle zone I said it's time to get the fuck out Cause they done let the wolves out Coming with that heat, mama shooting up the street Mama fight or fight adrenaline You feel that little tingle in your feet Mama no retreat, mobilize your whole fleet Hit the street, tell me that you good for it You want peace, go to war for it Say one, two, three, Geronimo Jump baby, we gotta go Screaming with me, scream Geronimo Can't patrol it off from Berlin to the Great Wall The greatest walls are bound to fall So legalize it, Vato About a gang is Chapo Come on, legalize it No need to advertise it The weed cures the cancer Everybody even caught or realized If a farmer don't make cash money When we rock that stash, honey Best believe they sooner take it out your ass, Sunday. Civilization 